Hi, I'm Patrick McBriarty. And I'm Christopher Lynch. And together, we are the hosts of Windy City Historians. We will share and discuss Chicago history. And some great Chicago stories. Sponsored by Rapunzel. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. No E. Created by two high school friends toward improving financial literacy, offering simulated financial trading competitions and scholarships. Check out their mobile app and interviews of Miles and Brian in the press. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Windy City Historians podcast, episode 15, The Union Stockyard Company. Patrick, you are a man of history. You know a lot about Chicago and its environs. Chris, is this where you're going to put me under a serious amount of pressure here? No, no, just one broad question. All right, I'll try. Okay. With that preface, I feel like I should be able to rise to the occasion now. I'm sure you will. I feel like I'm being set up. What attraction on the south side of Chicago, with buildings designed by Daniel Burnham, drew millions of visitors, princes and kings, that showed them the future, the modern, and which is still celebrated in literature, poem, and song to this day? Is that the World's Fair, the Columbian Exposition? No, you are wrong. No. I'm referring to the Union Stockyard in Chicago. What? Wait a minute. So you're saying Daniel Burnham, the architect, was involved in the Union Stockyards that started in the 1860s? He was involved because his father-in-law was the president of the Union Stockyard Company. Oh. So this is Chicago, right? You got to think in terms of... (laughs) Who do you know, Who do you know, right? The Union Stockyards were the biggest draw in Chicago from a tourist point of view. In 1893, everybody went to the World's Fair, but then when they weren't at the World's Fair, they went to the stockyards Ah. because this was the future. This was innovation on display. Well, I mean, if you're in town and you're visiting, you'd want to see other parts of Chicago too, I would imagine, not just the World's Fair, right? So That's right, except that while the grounds of the World's Fair were called the White City, I would argue that the Union Stockyard was the Red City. All the blood. All the blood. Hog butcher to the world. This was the other side of Chicago. This was the other side of the coin. The death and mayhem and guts and gore and blood. and It was real. (laughs) It was real, whereas the White City was the world as you would want it to be. Right. It wasn't like today this farm-to-table movement that, you know, we want to see where your food comes from. Oh, you could see where your food came from. (laughs) We had a great time talking to Dominic Basiga, who is the author of a book called Slaughterhouse. I am very excited about this program because this episode is going to merge my two worlds, Patrick. How so, Chris? My grandfather, Matthew Lynch, Matty Lynch, he worked in the Union Stockyards. Oh, really? And Union Stockyards was one square mile on the south side of Chicago. Now, now about what time was Maddie Lynch born? What, do you know? Well, exactly? he was born at the turn of the century, okay. like 1901. So yeah. he was working and raising a family in the stockyards in the 1930s. Like back of the yards neighborhood or somewhere? Well, that, well he was living in actually Englewood okay. at the time. Yeah. And he worked there until the 1950s when they kind of ended. So... The stockyards was one square mile. So that's my father's side of the family. Now, Mm -hmm. there's another famous one square mile in Chicago that I have 
some connection to. Well, I know the answer to this because I was acquainted you through your Midway Airport book. Right. Midway Airport is one square mile. And my grandfather, Pierce O'Carroll, was a pilot who worked his whole life from the 1920s to the 1960s at this one square mile in Midway Airport. In aviation, he was a pilot. He was a pilot. Taught and lessons, and he flew for people and mm-hmm. delivered goods, and they did, did they do repairs, too? It was like they, Monarch they, Air Service. They was... did, right, Monarch Air Service. They were a fixed-based operator, FBO. So that one square mile of my mother's side now meets the one square mile of my father's side. And... While researching this topic, I discovered that it's not just me personally that has a connection between these two one square miles. There are three major parallels between Midway Airport and the Chicago Stockyards. What I'm going to do is throughout this interview, we'll pop in once in a while. Sprinkle those three little connections. As they come up in conversation, we'll jump in and we'll mention it. All right, cool. But I want you to keep that in mind. All right. We were delighted to speak with Dominic Pasiga. He invited us to his home on a snowy November day. And with his beautiful dog laying at his feet, he told us about the Union Stockyard Company. And I believe one of the first questions you asked, Patrick, was, what is your connection to the Union Stockyard Company? And I think that's a good place to begin. Sure. Let's hear what he said. Okay. My family came, as I say, from Poland, both sides. Both came before World War I, and they all worked in the stockyard. Well, you wouldn't smell sulfur in the back of the yard, but there was right. a stench. Right. Uh, it was a real stench. And you know, supposedly you could tell the time of day by how the stench changed. Oh, wow. Because the packing process was going through, and, oh. and different kinds of smells were coming out. Not sure that that was true. But I'll tell you a story. I was raised in a neighborhood, and the stench meant nothing to me. It was just every day. I mean, you just yeah, smelled you'd, it. And, you'd habitualize yeah, it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. people would come into the neighborhood and say, oh, my God. And they say, oh, what are you talking about? You right. Know? But I was an altar boy, and they would take the altar boys out to a seminary to try to talk to being a priest. And he was out in the country, and I said, what is that smell? <laughs> and I started getting nauseous. And the guy says, what are you talking about? It's fresh air. I said, oh, my God. <laughs> But it was, I was so used to the stockyard, you know, it was there. The first night I worked in the stockyard, they didn't bring a change of clothes. I'd never brought a change of clothes to work before. My mother, she met me at the front door and she says, go in the back and take your clothes off in the yard and come in. <laughs> because I got on the bus, I remember, at two o'clock in the morning. The bus, yeah. there weren't a lot of people, but they got up and they moved to the back. Because <laughs> the smell. Here I was that first night in a building with 3,000 hogs. It's an unmistakable smell sure. once you've experienced it. Sure. It has layers to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. When did Chicago start to think this was the place where we could have cattle? Well, the first livestock slaughtered in Chicago, and we still slaughter in Chicago. There's still one packing house left. Mm. So from about 1820 on, we've been slaughtering animals in Chicago. Because it wasn't an Archibald Clyborne. Clyborne yeah, 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 Clyborne packing. Yeah. yeah. And they would sell the meat to the Fort Dearborn and soldiers and settlers and so well, forth. Well, and he was connected to John Kinsey right? because his mother's sister was John Kinsey's first wife. Okay. But Archibald Caldwell was trained as a butcher mm-hmm. and his father was a tanner. Right. And so I think that's the origins of packing yeah, in I, Chicago. Yeah, right? and, and, you know, and they would drive them up State Street. I mean, mostly what it was driven from mm-hmm. were local farmers. Yeah. So these were all livestock driven on the hoof. Bringing to market. Right. And that's why there were so small markets. And there were some markets connected to railroads eventually. After about 1855, rail starts to carry livestock. Okay. 
And uh, that's when you start getting railroad connected stockyards like the Sherman Stockyard on the lakefront. I wanted to ask you first uh, a point of order, I guess, as they say in the law. Mm-hmm. Is it stockyards or stockyard? It's really stockyard. It's Union Stockyard. Yeah. Uh, it was the Union Stockyard and Transit Company, which found, was founded in 1865 and opened on Christmas Day, 1865. So, what better way to celebrate Christ's birthday than to open a stockyard? <laughs> and, uh, and and so it's really stockyard. Well, in Chicago, that's in America for you. you got, but Chicagoans always called it the yards or the Chicago stockyards, one word, or just the yards. Because there are multiple companies in there that had stockyards, so that well, sometimes uh, the plural would fit. Then. The Union Stockyard was controlled by the Union Stockyard Company. Okay. When the packing houses moved south from Bridgeport to the stockyard, just west of the stockyard, and what we could call Packing Town. Mm-hmm. Uh, then it, it sort of just took on this name of stockyards because they had holding pens, et cetera, too, after yeah. they purchased animals. And where'd that name Union come from? Before the stockyards opened, there were a whole series of smaller stockyards in Chicago. Mm-hmm. The first one was the Bull's Head Stockyard, opened in 1848 at Ogden and Ashland. The most famous one was the Sherman Stockyards around 31st, around where Michael Reese Hospital was located. Okay. Oh, okay. Uh, and then they were all united together, the Brighton Stockyard, et cetera, Drover Stockyard. They were all united together into the Union Stockyard. Of course, in 1865, Union meant other things, too. It meant we just fought the war, the Civil War, and Union meant Union. Mm-hmm. So it had that sort of two sides of a coin kind of... Uh, Patriotic, also. Yeah. I remember all these people who organized Union Stockyard, most of them were good friends of Abraham Lincoln. Sure. Until the day the stockyard closed in 1971, there was a bust of Lincoln in front of the exchange building. So they had been friends of Lincoln. They knew Lincoln. Uh, They were founders of the Republican Party. And he had just died that year. Right. In April. Mm -hmm. So it was fresh on everyone's mind. Right. I think the Union Stockyard was incorporated in February. Chicago had some Copperhead aspects to it. Yeah, especially in Bridgeport. There was a good deal of Copperhead support and just Democratic support at all. The Chicago Times, the precursor to the Sun-Times, was actually anti-Lincoln, and Lincoln threatened to close it down during the Civil War. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on here. I mean, this is the capital of the Midwest, but Chicago really takes off because of the Civil War. And the stockyard Mm -hmm. was not in Chicago. No, it was south of Chicago in the suburbs. uh, The town of Lake. Town of Lake, right. Now, the town of Lake originally ran to the lake, but about 1863... The eastern portion, east of State Street, broke off and called itself Hyde Park. But the town of Lake maintained its name. So the stockyard company moved down there in 1865. Now, this caused problems early on because the infrastructure of Chicago with the fire department and the water mains was much more robust than the town of Lake. Right. Yeah. And the stockyard company had its own uh, fire department for a long time, even until the day it ended. It had its own security force, stockyard police. Since it was out on the edge of the city where nobody was ever going to move, it was so far away, right? Like they locate airports nowadays right. and try to put them outside the city. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, cities grow. Right. The first settlement was with stockyard settlement. Today we call it Canaryville. Yeah, you have a great map in your book. So Canaryville was to the east. Right. The northeast was Hamburg and Bridgeport. To the northwest was McKinley Park, and to the south and southwest was Back of the Arts. Now, ethnically, wasn't uh, Canaryville always Irish? No. I mean, the first people to come and work in the stockyards were native-born white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Okay. But the Irish start moving in after the meatpacking houses opened to the west in the 1870s. Because didn't a lot of the Irish work the canal? Sure. And settle in Bridgeport. They settled in Bridgeport, right, in St. Bridget's Church on Archer Avenue. 
and then later Nativity of Our Lord, which, you know, Nativity of Our Lord, which is where the dailies were from. In fact, Sis Daly was from St. Bridget's, so it was sort of a, a cross-Bridgeport marriage. Um, <laughs> but the Nativity of Our Lord was actually named Nativity of Our Lord because the original church was a barn that Mass was held in on 39th Street. And, and what so, a perfect name. Now, there were other churches that um, catered to the different ethnicities sure. of the neighborhood. If you look at the stockyard and put it in the center of a circle, probably two miles each way, you've got about 36 Catholic churches in wow. orbit. That's just the Catholic churches. Then you had a, a large number of Protestant churches and synagogues, uh, Jewish synagogues. Rod Fizedek, which is now in Hyde Park, was originally in Canaryville. God forbid the Catholic parishioner who's Irish, go to the Polish church. Better not. Never happened, right? Right. <laughs> and was this unusual for the South Side? How did this compare to other parts of the city? Oh, I think it was very usual for the South Side, I mean, okay. and probably more usual for the South Side than even the North Side. You know, we were all cut up in these little cells, these little ethnic cells. That didn't mean we didn't live together. Yeah. So why talk about spatial integration, social segregation? So spatially, you know, there might be somebody named Quinn or O'Brien living in front of me. There might be somebody named Latuskas, who's Lithuanian, lives upstairs, and I live downstairs. But we go to separate churches, we go to separate taverns, we go to separate funeral parlors, because nobody wants to go to God. You know God only speaks Polish, by the way. <laughs> so nobody wants to go to God with an Irish funeral director. You know? Yeah, that's. Yeah. I can understand. Yeah. Although the, the Irish do throw a really good wake. Well, you know, we'll, <laughs> we'll join you on that. <laughs> Polish throw a pretty good wake, too. But anyway, yeah, no, so we're all divided. Now, and the Union Stockyard, was that financed by some of the different railroads? There were nine railroads that came that were, together along with okay. the Chicago Pork Packers Association. See, the problem was if you have all these little stockyards around, so let's say you need a, a hundred cattle. Yeah. You go to one stockyard and they've only got 30. Yeah. And you got to go to another stockyard and get 20. And then you go to another stockyard, you know. Mm -hmm. And so you're moving cattle, too, because you're going to bring them all to the packing house. You're moving them all through the streets. And You explained that the Civil War really is what made the packing houses and the stockyards go in Chicago. Up until 1861, Cincinnati was known as Porkopolis. Chicago grabs that. But Cincinnati's just across the Ohio River from Kentucky, just across the river from slave territory. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So there's right. all this worry. And by the way, Cincinnati gets its hogs on rafts coming down the Ohio. The Ohio. Yeah. And <laughs> wow. That's going to be a point of war, possibly, especially if Kentucky leaves the Union now. Sure. Kentucky doesn't leave the Union, but there's a lot of pro-Confederate sure. feeling in Kentucky. Much more vulnerable to yeah. be taken by the rebels. Right. So they start to slowly move away from the river. Cincinnati remained an important packing district, but really what had happened now at this point was livestock slaughter began to move more and more toward the Chicago, mm -hmm. took on the railroads. And the railroads created a much larger hinterland. So if you're originally to the Bull's Head Stockyard in 1848, you drove cattle from local farms. So it's named after an Indian chief. Half day is about a half day drive in. You spent the night, sold your animals, and went back. Now the train brings it in in a couple hours from yeah, half day. Yeah, 1849, we get our first railroad. Yeah. And so you've got the Rock Island, Chicago Northwestern, Illinois Central starting to create a hinterland mm -hmm. that eventually covers 48 states. Meanwhile, even before the Civil War is ending, Texas cattle is being driven north, put them on trains, and then it's bring them up to Chicago. And then when the Union Stockyards created a united place with nine railroads coming in, and the railroads actually at the beginning, each had their own separate pens. Yes, yeah. They could unload 500 cars an hour. Wow. You know, the first guidebook to the stockyards actually comes out before it opens. 
<laughs> so there's a journalist who is very entrepreneurial. He goes out there once a week or so to see how things are going. He's writing it all up and he puts out this guidebook that comes out before the stockyard opens. So when the stockyard opens, there's all these tourists who go down to see this great new livestock market. They've got a guide yeah, right from the great. beginning. What was the season for slaughter before refrigeration? Early fall, mostly in the winter, uh, through to the early spring. So we're recording this in November and there's four inches of snow outside. This would have been a good day. This would have been a good day. And that's mostly when the packing houses are in Bridgeport. And what would happen is sort of a seasonal thing in Bridgeport because then the lumber yards are across the river from the packing houses. Yeah. So you could work in the lumber yard during the summer. So you had this kind of seasonal run of employment. Or you could work on the ships because there's not a lot of ships in the winter, right? right. Going on, the, then right. you could go on Great Lakes and work. Chicago was a wild west town. You could be sitting on Archer Avenue. Yeah. And you could have 500 cattle go by your door, wow. you know, or 200 hogs, you know, because the hogs were driven on hoof too. Part of the problem with driving them on hoof is they tend to die or they lose weight or they form muscle, which is not good for meat. Uh, in and a or potentially way. break loose or wander off. And too. break loose or wander right. off. You've got these cowboys coming in, etc. So the stockyard, when it united, it united all these smaller stockyards into one. Mm-hmm. And that, that was what the railroads wanted and what actually what big business wanted because they wanted a central terminal market. Sure. Now, most of the packing houses, as I say, were located on the south branch of the river. That's where you get stories of the river turning red with blood. By the mid-1870s, you start to see the packing houses moving from the river down to the west of the stockyards. And what was originally called the Bridgeport Stench now becomes the Stockyard Stench. You have that great story in your book about the cattle drive over the Rush Street Bridge. Right. That disables the bridge. Yeah, it, it breaks it. it. I mean, there are so many cattle on the bridge that it collapses. You know, well, you know. it was in my book as well on oh, Chicago okay. River Bridges yeah. in 1863. Yeah. And, 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 it's... and my favorite part of it is on Election Day yeah. in, in November. Hmm. And the regular bridge center was out at the polls, uh-huh. you know, working because yeah. they were assigned by the mayor. And the paper characterized him as a very ignorant Irishman, <laughs> okay. which, as McBriarty, I don't have mm-hmm. a problem saying it. It's now <laughs> yeah, hilarious. Yeah, yeah. The two were running the bridge and mm-hmm. were doing fine until the end of the day, about five o'clock. And I guess it was a 137 head of cattle. And at the same time, a tug was towing a boat. And if they whistled, then they were instructed to open the bridge. Pastors saw what was going to happen on the bridge and also elsewhere and tried to yell to the bridge centers not to open the bridge yet. Hmm. And apparently there's still about 67 head of cattle on, on really? the north end of the bridge yeah. when they turned it. And hmm. as the bridge left the abutment, it started to dip on the mm. north side, and then all of a sudden there are these sharp retorts of cracking timber and, right. and iron, and the bridge collapses, blocking the river, sure. and oh became a major mess. Mayor Sherman, within two weeks, had a new contract out for a second Rush Street Bridge, and uh-huh. within three months, they had a brand new Rush Street Bridge yeah. built. Well, I learned from your book that there was a city ordinance passed that restricted driving cattle for, I think it was 8 a.m. to 5 p.m.? Right, yeah, and so that really hurts the packing business because the markets would open about 8 o'clock. For the packing houses to move close to the Union Stockyard made sense because you simply bought the cattle and drove them over to your packing house. Mm-hmm. But, of course, there were nine railroads coming in, so cattle were getting killed on the railroad tracks right. and hurting themselves, etc. So they eventually built these viaducts, which went over the railroad tracks. And actually, then the viaducts connected all the packing houses to the cattle, hog, and sheep market and went as far west as Ashland Avenue to about Damon. So actually, over Ashland Avenue, there was a three-tiered viaduct for hogs, cattle, and sheep. Wow. 
I can't even visualize that. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's kind of hard. When I worked at the stockyard, the viaducts were still up, but we didn't drive cattle on them. Okay. But I would sometimes walk along them above the cattle pens when I was a guard. Good observation point. Yeah. The Chicago Tribune called it organized chaos. As if you didn't work there, you didn't know cattle pens, the hog pens, the sheep pens, which were so immense, there's so many of them, that you get lost very easily. But if you worked there, you understood that every pen had an address. Section 6, 170. You could work it out. Yeah. You're driving cattle on foot. The commissionmen would be on horseback, but the livestock handlers were on foot driving these cattle over these ramps and through these alleys, and God only knows. And sometimes out on the street because the packers in Canaryville had to drive them down Exchange Avenue over Halstead and into Canaryville and north in Bridgeport, north of 39th Street, you crossed the river and drove them there. Eventually, there were tunnels under the street where you could drive cattle under 39th Street and then up into the Bridgeport packing houses. They were just outside the stockyard, but uh, they didn't have the ramps over the street. Was that because of Octave Chanute when he designed the yards? He took into account that grid-type system? He set up that grid-type system, which basically mimicked the city grid, which is basically set up so that people who come to Chicago don't get lost. You can figure your way out. Well, the same thing with Octave Chanute. His real accomplishment was training it, because this was a swamp. Okay, Patrick, we're back at the Waveland Island Studios. We just came to another parallel between Midway Airport and the Union Stockyard Company. The second connection between those two square miles in Chicago. Dominic was talking about Octave Chanute, who was the engineer that designed the Union Stockyard. Because it was swampy land. Very swampy okay. land. And yeah. you need a lot of water to run a packing house. And there wasn't good water, so Chanute also took that into account. To solve that problem, too. Right. They drilled some wells. They set up a sewer system, a, a water system. So Octave Chanute, besides being an engineer, he was a collector of information. He was the Google of his time. Like Da Vinci would collect all these mm-hmm. different war machines or other inventions in his notebooks. Octave Chanute was a similar approach to collecting information and then putting it together. Yes, his hobby was aeronautics. Mm. So what he did... And flight. He wrote a book called Progress in Flying Machines. And in its day, it was the only thing. And also, he corresponded with everyone, like Lilienthal in Germany and and others who were working on this and pondering this problem. Mm -hmm. And because he was a known expert, he got a letter from a person from Dayton, Ohio, named Wright basically saying, tell us more about this flying business. And Orville and Wilbur Wright became great friends with Octave Chanute. As a matter of fact, Octave Chanute was present at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, when they were doing their experiments. He was a man in his 70s, but he had to return to Chicago. But the first telegram that anybody got regarding the Wright brothers' famous flight in 1903 went to Octave Chanute. I think you told me before that the two had pretty extensive correspondence back and forth. Yes. And sharing ideas and thoughts and concepts. In fact, Chanute told the Wrights to go to North Carolina because one of their questions was, where can we do our flying experiments mm-hmm. because of the winds and whatnot, and Chanute recommended that. Chanute, by the way, also did a lot of experiments at Miller Beach in what is now Gary, Indiana, and the Tribune used to follow these experiments, and these men would be dressed like bats, and they'd be jumping off sand dunes and whatnot, so he was doing this in the 1890s, so he knew something about being at a place with certain wind conditions and experimenting, and also experimenting in secret. Mm. And the rights were obsessed with secrecy. So that is a great parallel because one can draw a line from the beginning of the Wright brothers and Octave Chanute all the way up into the beginning of Chicago Midway Airport. 
That's our Octave Chanute parallel. Everybody in that world knew what was going on. You had the buyers and the pens, Mm -hmm. where whatever the price discussed, it was held at that price until the guy bought or left. And then it null and voided the deal. And then somebody would write, this is the price. And then somehow that would get back to the office. Right. You know, it's kind of interesting in the world before computers. I mean, we're so reliant on computers now. I was thinking of Excel. This is Excel was built for this. Exactly. Exactly. So this was all a paper trail. Every head of livestock had a paper trail that they could follow. Because look, you didn't want Farmer Jones coming in and selling 200 hogs and getting a check for Farmer Smith's hogs. Right. You sure, know, mm-hmm. sure. You mm-hmm. wanted, he, wanted, he brought in 12 hogs. Right, right. yeah. And he, but, or even if he brought in 200, they were sure. his hogs. They weren't as good as my hogs. Right. You know? And so farmers were always worried about being cheated. So it was an incredible paper trail, mm-hmm. even until the day they closed, because there were no computers around in 1971 either. Yeah, right. so they had scales that could weigh about 25 cattle at a time. Mm-hmm. And at that point, a check would be issued to Farmer Jones, Farmer Smith, Farmer Bill, whatever. The record run for cattle in one day is 49,128. Oh, wow. They wow. each have a piece of paper on them. And That's this is a thousand pound animal. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And this is 1906. Okay. Uh, the record run for hogs in 1924, 122,749 in one day. Wow. Oh, now, God. that doesn't mean that's only the hogs that were there. There might have been hogs left over from other markets. There might have been hogs brought in by direct buying by the packers. Mm-hmm. There probably were close to 150,000 hogs in that hog house, each with a piece of paper on them. So everybody knew who they belonged to and who they were sold to and when they would be delivered. So you've got sellers and buyers in the pens, and the, the buyer would come in cattle alley, would come on horseback, so you could get a good view. They'd let one buyer in at a time. While he was there, he was an exclusive buyer. You didn't have bidding against each other. Mm-hmm. Right? But I was the seller, and I could take it or leave it. If I took it, he would take his whip and wave it down. The market is sold to, mm-hmm. you know, Swift and Company, and then they would send their people over to get it. We'd all make a little note in our little notebooks, and that would be it. Wow. Uh, some of times the buyer would hold it till the very end of the market. And then the guy who offered, say, 23 would come back and say, what do you want now? I'll give you 22 oh. He could take it or leave it because if he left it, he's got to pay for feed, water, and that pen. It's a hotel. It's yeah. a hotel for animals. Right. Stockyard never killed animals. We never slaughtered animals. It was simply a hotel for animals. Mm. And if you wanted to leave it there for a week, we'd be happy to serve you. Sure. You know. Here's your bill, sir. Yeah. Here's your bill. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. <laughs> You know, so and they watered and fed, right? And, maintained. and by the way, they watched this movie, and, yeah. and then <laughs> that's right. you know, you ordered room service. Yeah, and, you know that you cow know. adult station. That's, that's right. That's right. <laughs> that's an extra five bucks. <laughs> so, yeah. So it was really, you know, so yeah. you 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 wanted to get them out of there as quickly as possible, over sure. to your own pen for slaughter. Now, were yeah. there any veterinarians? Oh, on, sure. on hand. Well, because disease would be a, a real concern because sure. it could just go through the herd like Absolutely. wildfire potentially sure. if it was Absolutely. very yeah. you know, contagious. Yeah. Yeah. Now, in your book, you mentioned there was a lot of horses. The finest horse market in the country. There were just thousands of horses. Yeah, yeah. The lead run on horses is over 3,000 wow. on a day. This was just like Wall Street. Mm-hmm. So you'd have speculators and they'd say, well, I'm going to buy your 200 hogs for 25. I think I'm going to get 30 tomorrow. Yeah. So if a speculator came in from, let's say, Des Moines, where would they stay? Well, speculators were on market. They, on market. They had okay. an office, and they had okay. to be registered. People who came in were farmers and cowboys, and they would stay usually at the stockyard inn, and there were also a whole bunch of other little hotels along Halsted Street. Tell me about John Sherman. 
John Sherman's a fascinating character. He owns his own stockyard, the Sherman Yards, along the lakefront. And he actually buys the Bull's Head stockyard at one point, too. And is one of the pushers and shakers to create this Union stockyard. Now, John Sherman's an interesting character because, of course, he becomes a millionaire. Hmm. Uh, even though he's the general manager and vice president of the stockyard, I think at one point he actually becomes president. He builds a house, and there's a young architect, Daniel Burnham. And Daniel Burnham falls in love with John Sherman's daughter. Oh. And so the Burnham and Root gets all the contracts at the stockyards. So they build a stone gate in sure. 1879. And you know. I learned from your book that the bull in the arch yes. is named Sherman. Sherman, yes. And it was, a pri- <laughs> it was the prize mm-hmm. bull of John Sherman. So Patrick, Dominic just mentioned, and we just discussed Daniel Burnham. Right. Our famous architect from Chicago. So let's just pause for a moment and just consider that Daniel Burnham, who married the daughter of William Sherman, is designing many of the buildings in the stockyards, as well as the famous arch, Mm -hmm. which was built in 1879. So this isn't just some run-of-the-mill architect, right? Daniel Burnham. The architect and planner for the White City for the World's Fair of 1893. Make no small plans. We're talking about the guy that designed the plan for Chicago. And one can see that he is very involved with the Union Stockyard Company. This is like having Mark Twain working at your general store or something. So again, Daniel Burnham, one of the great fathers of 19th century Chicago. John Sherman eventually gets kind of pushed out. He's very old when he gets pushed out. He loved spectacle. So he creates the Dexter Park Racetrack, which becomes one of the finest racetracks in the country. Hmm. That's, by the way, where the Cubs play their first game on the infield at the Dexter Park Racetrack. That was in the 1870s, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, and 43rd in Halstead. So he's a bit of a showman. He is. He's a bit of a showman. He has his own private zoo. Of, uh, you know, like two-headed sheep and, you know, pigs with three tails, oddities, right? I'd pay to see that. Yeah. And people, (laughs) oh, they do. And then then he starts to establish the livestock shows. In fact, the book was originally supposed to be called Spectacle and Innovation. Well, it's interesting you say that because before I purchased your book, I went to the library and it was filed under business. Mm -hmm. And which kind of threw me. But then when I read it, it made total sense to me because... This Union Stockyard was the Google and Microsoft of its era. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This was cutting-edge stuff. What was so innovative about the stockyards? In 1890, a butcher and his assistant took somewhere between 8 to 10 hours to deliver a bee, that is to slaughter an animal. At Armour, it took 34 minutes. Swift, it took the same amount. It took about 26 minutes for hogs. It took hours to kill a hog and slaughter it and bleed it. So there was mass production. The beginning of mass production. I mean, Henry Ford gets the idea for the assembly line from Chicago's disassembly line. You know? Because this was a tourist attraction. Oh, 500,000 people a year by the turn of the 19th into the 20th century used to visit the stock. They'd come through and just see. Yeah. Now, walk us through. What would they see when they walked in? Well, first they'd usually come in through the stone gate, be a special tour of the stockyard, showing the pens and explaining things. This was originally done by kids from Canaryville who would do it for 10 cents or 15 cents. Uh, I was going to say, was there a fee? or? Yeah. yeah. Well, event, at first. Okay. Kids <laughs> and, and then for a quarter, they'd take you through the packing houses for a quarter. Mm-hmm. Eventually, the packing house owner says, mm, I don't want these kids running around inside my packing house. So besides, we're going to have now uniformed guards who really know what they're talking about, who are going to take people through. So 500,000 people are going through. And one day, 10,000 came through. 
they actually had men on horseback leading them through the stockyards and into the pack houses because there were so many of them. Oh my God. You know. Almost like cattle themselves. Right. Yeah, exactly. So they would come in, <laughs> they'd see a tour, and then they'd be taken to an individual packing house to see the operation. Yeah. And the largest spectacle was the hog kill. You understand on those bidocks that livestock were driven on, they were driven up to the roofs of the packing houses. And on the top of the roofs, they were cooled down. At first, they were let to sit there overnight and mm-hmm. slaughtered, and then the next bunch would come in the next day. But later on, it was just for a few hours just to cool down, and they would be watered. Water would be sprayed on top of them. Why would they cool them down? The feeling was that it caused meat to go bad. They had this idea that it would coagulate the blood, and mm-hmm. it wouldn't really be good for the slaughter. Mm-hmm. So then they would be driven about a dozen or time into the kill floor, where they were met by the Hereford wheel, which was a huge wheel. The shackler would grab the hind leg of a hog, and shackle it, and then it would go up into the air. The hog kill was the loudest kill, because hogs know what they're doing. They're very smart, yeah. they know what's going on, and they scream bloody murder. I went to grad school yeah. with a guy. He came from a hog farm yeah. in Iowa, and he said keeping the hogs in the pens right. was really difficult, because they were super smart. You could electrify the fence. They would just push mud or grass up against it, and short it out or use that as an insulator to then work their way either under or over. Sure. He said they're super smart animals. Well, they are. I began working in the yards in the hog house. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was a kid. Nobody could tell me what to do. And the old guys <laughs> would say, throw the gates behind you, lock the gates behind you, because if they get behind you, they're going out to the street. Mm-hmm. Nothing was going to get past me, right? <laughs> Come on. No, right. Please. Maybe these codgers, <laughs> these guys who are here. 30s and 40s, sure. you know, they could hardly move. Right. I was, you know, too fast. <laughs> so I'm driving 200 hogs up the alley, and the hog turns his head and looks back at me. I'm going, yeah, yeah, hog boy. Yeah. Uh, and I'm driving him, and this hog turns around, barrels, knocks me down. And suddenly I'm looking over 200 hogs rushing at me. I jump up. I look up. Of course, I had thrown no gate. They were headed for Halsted Street. Yeah. They were just 200 hogs headed. I scream. The guys in the dock, fortunately, were still on the dock. They threw the gate. I thought they were going to kill me that night because yeah. we would have had to go out and get them. Right. I mean, the yeah. stockyard company was responsible for those 200 hogs. We yeah. would have had to go out and get them. Hogs know what they're doing. Yeah. So the hog kill was the loudest. But, you know, into the 1950s, they would bring 9- and 10-year-old kids to see the hog kill. I have friends who were taken by the YMCA or by their grade school mm-hmm. to the hog kill, and they're, they're like, marked forever. Slit the throat. That's how you kill them. Yeah. So the wheel, next thing you know, the hog's upside down. Right. And it's going up up the wheel. Hanging right. by its haunches. There's a sticker who's waiting, right? Right. The wheel then automatically drops it on a steel bar, and it goes down to the sticker. He bleeds it. Bleeds it. And he's probably the fastest worker. He's paid among the best. Yeah. And he's also a pace setter. I had never seen a kill. I worked outside in the stockyard, yeah. the cattle house, the hog alley. Well, we're now so far removed from the agrarian world that we came up from, and we just go to the grocery store, but all that meat gets killed. Right, absolutely. I mean, I think kids grow up thinking that chicken comes from God in a plastic package and goes right to Jewel. Comes from the colonel. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. from the colonel. (laughs) So I talked to Franco Cipetti, and they were still slaughtering in Chicago, and Franco said his Uncle Brian would take me on a tour, so I went and I saw the tour. I was a little queasy at first. I thought, you know, I've never seen a kill. It happened so fast. I mean, I was right there where the guy went up, slipped, throat, and then it's moving so fast that it's just a job. Yeah. I mean, it just gets right. to be just a job. Yeah, routine. Right. You know, within right. 20 minutes, I'm in the cooler, just moving so quickly. This really became a draw for people because they were shocked by it. Yeah. This yeah. was the modern. 
This sure. is somebody slapping you in the face and saying, this is modern. This yeah. is the world shock of tomorrow. Of the yeah, the shock of the new. And it was just fascinating. So and there's Sarah, blood and it's macabre. And oh, it's, yeah. yeah. And Sarah Bernhardt comes, you know, mm -hmm. the actress. Mm -hmm. uh, Max Weber, the sociologist, Russian princes. We didn't have tours when I was there. People would bring their children to look at the cows. So Henry Ford watches this efficiency. Right. And he's like, I could build a car like this. Right, I could reverse it yeah. and build a car like this. Yeah. Wow. And in a way, it's so impersonal because that hog, in a matter of a few minutes, is many different pieces. Yeah. Upton Sinclair writes about the squeal of the universe. Get over it. <laughs> uh, and uh, the truth is that it, it just happens so fast. Yeah. Well, you talked about the pace setter, and I always thought that was like the IndyCar. Mm -hmm. But then I, I realized that it really it predates that by oh, yeah. 100 years. Oh, yeah. The sticker is setting the pace for the assembly. Right. The coxswain on a crew. But sure. You're, right. You're calling the cadence, pace your kills. If you want to speed up, that's the guy you got to say speed up to. Right. Oh, and so sure. they were the best paid. Yeah. You know, it makes sense. That, for instance, the, they, the guy who's sometimes called the knocker, some guy, sometimes he's called the stunner in the cattle kill. Yeah. He sets the pace mm -hmm. because yeah. he's knocking out a thousand it's pound the It's the first step, yeah. basically. Yeah. I had mentioned to you that my grandfather worked in the stockyards Miller and Hart and he told me about that about seeing that how mm -hmm. the guy would take the sledgehammer and boom hit the steer right in the center there between the eyes and then I learned from your book that there a lever would be pulled mm -hmm. and they would slide down right. and then the leg would be shackled mm -hmm. and then the process would and you begin. hoped he was knocked out because sometimes they weren't knocked out and for a long time they had been on the platform with a shotgun it was very efficient at one point they're killing like 2500 cattle a day at armory once refrigeration comes in, you can kill all months of the year, but you can't transport animals because there's no refrigerated railroad car. But it's by the mid-1870s that Gus Swift has his people invent a car that works. But then that sets off a whole resistance, right? Sure. Because meat packers in the East say this is embalmed beef. Yeah, I Why? thought that was a funny term. Yeah. The other thing is the railroads don't want to carry it because the railroads making a lot of money carrying the whole cattle. Yeah. Until the 1880s, more than half of the cattle, hogs and sheep, were put back on trains and sent to the East Coast. In the 1880s now, this begins to reverse because we're chilling beef here and we're putting it in refrigerated cars. But the railroads don't want to carry it. So Armour swiftly fight against the railroads. The Canadian Railroad, the Grand Trunk. Is this because the refrigerated cars are more expensive to operate then? No. Okay. It was because you could put 50 beeves on a car instead of 25. And a beeve is B-E-E-V-E-S. That, right. That's the carcass of the animal. Right. So you could put 50 or 100 on a car mm -hmm. instead of 25. Ah. So you're shipping more, more beef and less, 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 less space. Less, and right. So, okay. And cattle cars are by weight, et cetera. Yep. You know, so. Yep. The Grand Trunk comes in from the north through Wisconsin. The Canadian Railroad agrees to carry them. <laughs> so they carry chilled beef up into Canada, around the Great Lakes, and down into New England and New York. The meatpacking district in New York, there was a stockyard there that would sell the cattle that were bought in Chicago and then sold in New York. So they did this embalmed beef thing. Well, Swift said, okay, fine. You charge 10 cents a pound, and I'm going to open a store, and I'm going to charge 8 cents. And when you charge 7 cents, I'll charge 3 cents. Mm -hmm. And when you charge 3 cents, I'll give it away. And this, again, going back to the 21st century, substitutes Swift for Amazon. Sure, absolutely. Exactly. They will undercut you at any absolutely. price point. Absolutely. 
And he does this on the West Coast, too. I read in your book how he took over the West Coast yeah, market yeah, yeah. when he bought that. cattle farm that was inviting the major packer in San Francisco. Yeah. They got out of their business, and bam, he buys it. And so this goes back because he was confident he could innovate yeah. and out-innovate anybody, any other competitor, sure. kind of like Jeff Bezos. And, sure, exactly. And therefore, go And was volume. ruthless enough to do it to the point where he'd lose money, yeah. but then he'd have it. Yeah. So he took over the East Coast first, then he took over the West. Mm-hmm. Then I read in your book, he went to Europe. Yes, they go to Europe too. Beef was chilled, actually once it was canned. Vienna sausages never invented in Vienna. They were invented on 43rd and Racine. <laughs> uh, Tell us about the rendering businesses. Well, uh, originally meat packers threw everything that wasn't meat into the river because that's how human beings are. They see fresh water, they throw garbage into it. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so that's when the rivers would turn bloody red. They began to slowly realize that they could use more and more parts of the hog, whether the cattle or the sheep. They used hog hairs to stuff cushions. Wasn't also the bristles for paintings? Painting? Uh, well, there were delicate little hairs in the ears of a hog. And oh. they would have people snip the hog hairs out and turn them into paintbrushes. Oh, my goodness. So there was all kinds of things that were being used. And they began to make more money from the byproduct. The first big byproduct, of course, was the hides. Because yeah. hides are used for shoes, purses, clothing, So whatever. you usually have a tannery nearby. Right. And also the tanneries on the north side of Chicago would buy their hides here and then ship them on the river. You know, at one point, apparently, you could buy buttons on Halsted Street from cattle that were slaughtered that morning. Oh, wow. Because they would bake the blood into the form of buttons. So you'd have the buttons from the, the bone of the animal? No, oh, the blood. The blood? The blood. Oh. They would bake blood oh, into, that's, that's into buttons. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how it held up in the wash. Yeah, right, uh, right. Uh, <laughs> and then, of course, the old saying was you would use every part of the animal but the squeal. Right. What was more profitable, pigs or cattle, as far as using all parts of the animal? Well, I mean, cattle were always more profitable because it was just more meat. Okay. But I think hogs, especially later on, because the use of various kinds of hog stomach parts, etc., for medical purposes. Okay. And also dog food. There is still in the stockyard, in an old packing house, a basement just filled with hides. Faces of cattle peeled, and they're turned into dog treats. Oh, jeez. So... Well, Rover has to eat, right? Rover has to eat, yeah. Back here at the Waveland Island Studios, I just want to stress the fact that fire was a constant danger at the Union Stockyards. Well, I would imagine anywhere in Chicago at that time, too, with so much lumber and wood. And hay. Right. And everybody smoked. That's right. And if you had a dry summer... Somebody might flick a cigar into a hay bale or... Some embers in the right location could then flare up. A lot um, of combustible material, basically, in one area. Right. And again, even going back to the early days of the Union Stockyards, there was always a concern about water. And that's one reason Chicago annexed that part of town, which was called Lake, because they really needed the water. They mm-hmm. just didn't have it. But again, it's interesting that Chicago's relationship with fire, we have the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. People forget that the fire of 1934 in the Union Stockyards was the second greatest fire in Chicago history. Tell us about the dangers like with fire. 
fire always broke out. I mean, the big fire, of course, in 1910 at the Morris plant where 21 Chicago Fire Department people are killed. It's the biggest accident of fire personnel, first responders, until 9-11. And then two citizens are also killed. The building collapsed. Superintendent Horan, who was the, the head of the fire department, was actually killed in this too. He led the men into the building when it collapsed. And that was a big one. That almost wrecked Nelson Morris and company. Then, of course, the big, big fire was in May of 1934. It was very hot. This is the beginning of the Dust Bowl, etc. It was very hot, 90-degree days in May. The stockyards were all wooden pens, and they were covered with hay. Everybody smoked. There was actually overpasses over the stockyards. You could drive a car over the stockyards. So they were wooden. So people could drive from Halston Street to Racine and into Packingtown. They made these sort of viaducts for automobiles okay. that could fly, fly over the stockyards. Mm -hmm. Well, some guy apparently was driving Shroud a cigar, and uh, that was beginning to fire. Discovered in a sheep pen, the fire was believed started by a carelessly discarded match. Resulting deaths of animals and destruction of stockyard buildings was put at cost of over $10 million. And that fire killed only one person, a guard, who was killed trying to let cattle out as the buildings collapsed on him, the covered sheds, rather. But there were always fires, big fires. And by the way, that 1934 fire in because the winds in May are come out of the south and the west, actually pushed the fire into Canaryville. So the original drover's bank burned down and houses in Canaryville. People were talking about the second Chicago fire. There's one story of a tavern. He popped open the kegs of beer and gave them free beer. Surprisingly enough, that tavern survived. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the cattle alley burned down. None of the packing houses were touched. Fire was from the south and the west and it started in the cattle pen and moved east. The Stockyard Inn went, the amphitheater went, oh, uh, oh, okay. the horse market was destroyed, the cattle pens were gone, the exchange building burned, the Livestock National Bank building burned. What was left was the hog house and mm -hmm. part of the sheep house. And the next day the market opened and they continued. What was it then about the stockyards? Was it just because it was a family thing? I mean, because you said you also had some relatives that didn't want anything to do right. in the my, stockyards. Right. My father never wanted to work in the stockyards. He thought I was crazy for going to work in the stockyards. Yeah. But for me, it became almost a kind of romantic thing, you know? Yeah. There was this industry that had given birth to Chicago. My mother had loved working in the stockyards until she went to work at the Chrysler plant during World War II. And so I had always grown up, well, the stench, and I knew the smell, and I knew people that had worked in the stockyards. What did your mother do in the stockyard? She worked in the canning department. She okay. canned hams. She was one of the first to join the CIO union in the 1930s. I think she worked there for 10 or 12 years. She worked like from the age of 13 on. Told them they, she was 16. Nobody checked. and She went to work. I really enjoyed it. I liked working there a lot. You got to know a lot of people's father had worked there. And there were guys who went to work there at 18. They were 70 years old. They were still working in the stockyards. Wow. We weren't as busy as they once had been. Mm -hmm. I think the largest run I saw of hogs might have been 5,000 hogs. That's very different than getting 100,000 hogs. Cattle, the largest run I saw was maybe 13,000 cattle. You know, you usually get 25 to 30,000 cattle. I didn't see that kind of business. You could sit around and talk to guys. You could tell stories. And, yeah. We you know, a usual cattle car when it came in with livestock. And we still, when I was working there in 1969, 70, 71, we still loaded cattle rail cars to go east because for the kosher kill. Oh. According to kosher law, you have to eat the meat within a certain amount of hours after it's slaughtered. So okay. there were the large kosher kills in New Jersey and Philadelphia oh, and okay. outside of New York, basically. 
But also then being in the stockyards as opposed to the packing houses. Right. It was outside. It was, yeah, it would be, yeah. you know. Oh, yeah. If you're dealing with livestock, it's, it's you're more or less outside. It's, you buy a cowboy hand. Yeah. Wear boots. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know. I can see now sort of the romance to yeah. some of that. And, and then later on, they made me a security guard. You know, uh-huh. I quit, and then I came back, and they put me with the security guards, and the amphitheater was going full blast. So the Jefferson Airplane would come in, and Dave Clark 5, and Jackson 5. And when I was a kid, Roy Rogers and Dale Evans were big on the TV. I got to meet Roy and Dale oh, wow. at the Livestock Show, and I drove the Sons of the Pioneers around in their car. And we still had the Livestock Show. And the Livestock Show was a big, big thing, because yeah. it was something we prepared for all year. That amphitheater, how big was that and where was it located? Well, the amphitheater was on Halsted Street. Okay. It was located between Exchange Avenue south to about 45th Street. Okay. And that's where the Chicago Convention was? That's where the 68 Convention was, yeah. 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 Like I say, lots of other things. Elvis Presley, and, you know, the Beatles and, you know, all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. That goes back to, was it Sherman, right? This right, was Sherman. kind of the showman. And he, Sherman that was sets up the... first the Dexter Park racetrack, but then he sets up something called the Dexter Park Pavilion, mm-hmm. which is basically for livestock shows. Okay. And the amphitheater itself is basically for livestock shows. So if you went into the auditorium, that is actually a livestock ring. Once McCormick Place opened, you know, that began the, the end. Did that Uptown Sinclair book, was there fabrication in the jungle? I think there was exaggeration. I don't know if it's actually fabrication. He took the rumors of 50 years. You know, there's this one part where a fella falls into a vat of lard and goes mm-hmm. out as pure leaf lard. He heard that in the tavern. Yeah. Now, I can tell you a lot of stories in taverns. You probably shouldn't <laughs> believe me. You know, uh, As a historian, I have one sense of myself. As a great storyteller, I have another <laughs> sense of myself. Yedidas Sabaitis, who holds the Lithuanian chair of language at UIC, wrote a book called The Lithuanian Jungle. I think there's like 60-some words that are Lithuanian that are used in the book. He actually was able, because he's a language expert, find what part of Lithuania it was from. Wow. So he's actually tracked oh, down wow. some of these people that are mentioned in the book. You remember the novel opens in a tavern, there's a wedding. He found the tavern. By the time he found the place, it had been knocked down. But I knew that place as a kid because I grew up just a block away from it. Mm-hmm. So we would walk by and watch the guys, you know, come out, drink and howl and do whatever they did. But it's right close to Holy Cross Lithuanian Church. So it all kind of makes sense. And he figured out where people lived and so forth. He still teaches. He does two stockyard tours a year for his students at UIC. When was the beginning of the end? 1952, Wilson and Company opens a plant in Kansas City. These packing houses tended to be three to eight stories tall. Livestock killed on the top. The new plants were one story. Livestock came in on one end and went out as hams and beeves on the other end. Much more efficient. So Wilson closes in 54, 1954. And that's really the first big packer to close. Unions had something to do with that. Wilson was a very anti-union company as well. And then by 1959, Armour and Swift announced their closings also. By 1960-61, the meatpackers, big meatpackers are gone. There's still a lot of small independent packers around. Brennan packing and reliable meatpacking. And Agar was there till 64, 65. So there were still a, a lot of local packers that used the stockyard. And then the stockyard decided it was going to remodel. So it cut everything north of Exchange Avenue off and it was redeveloped as a, an industrial park for Central Manufacturing District. Central Manufacturing District was another brother company of the Stockyard Company. It was all owned by the Prince Enterprises. And in the South was going to remain the cattle, hog, and sheep market. They built a new hog house, a new sheep house. There were rumors that armor would come back. Frederick H. Prince's one son was killed in World War I, and he was one of the Lafayette Escadrille people. And he was killed, and the 
adopted a nephew, I believe, or a cousin, William Wood Prince. He adopted William Wood. He was a grown man. He was fighting in the Pacific. He came back and inherited the Prince fortune. He became William Wood Prince, president of the Stockyard Company, and then he later went on to become president of Armour and Company. Everybody thought, well, that would mean Armour would stay, but he pulled it out and closed it down. Princes were very important in the First National Bank and Livestock National Bank, all these different kinds of corporate boards and stuff like that. And they ran the Central Manufacturing District. They owned the CMD and the Union Stockyard. So the stockyard handed its northern portion over to the CMD, and it was redeveloped as part of the Central Manufacturing District. Those buildings are still there, and they're still occupied. South of Exchange Avenue, the numbers just started to go down and down and down and down. There were lots of attempts to save it. I think the last year I was there, it was somewhere around 700,000 head of cattle still came in. And we still had a lively market, but the land was expensive. And then the CMD took it over and redeveloped it as a industrial park. And today it's part of what's called a stockyard industrial park, industrial district. A lot of TIF money has been spent in the neighborhood. And really the stockyard TIF has been one of the more successful TIFs in the city as far and as- actually used as it was intended. As used as it was intended. And, and today 15,000 people work in the union stockyards. Just wanted to mention here that one of the things that Dominic told us about was the new packing museum that he is involved with called The Plant, a repurposed building down on the south side, an industrial building that has a variety of different kind of incubator type yes. companies in there. Hydroponics. Especially, yeah, there's some growing that's going on there of food and other items. There's a brewery in there and the address is 1400 West 46th Street. Dominic was asked to be involved, and they've created a museum of the stockyard. If one would like to know more, that this would be a great place to visit. Sure. So you could take actually a pilgrimage down to one of the buildings that operated in its heyday. And again, it's called The Plant at 1400 West 46th Street. And I would imagine that, you know, with the brewery there, you could probably stop in and have a little something to... um, to keep you going. Yes, just don't have anything called Bubbly Creek. I don't think they have a beer called Bubbly Creek, but I wouldn't touch that. It's in a packing house called The Plant. It used to be the Pure Food Packing House on 1400 West 46th Street. John Adel, an interesting guy, created it as a food incubator. And so he dedicated part of it as for a museum of the stockyards in the packing mm-hmm. town. Because I think they've got some hydroponics. Uh, yes, they going have. On in yeah, there. The, the indoor farms with yeah. the tilapia. It looks like an old packing house because it is. Mm-hmm. And the, the room we have actually still has the overhead rails that the carcasses would come down. Oh yeah, from, you yeah. Know. they were hung from. Yeah, mm-hmm. they never killed. They would buy the carcasses from Armor Swift or whatever and then cut them up. So in my neighborhood, when I grew up in back of the yards, every bar would have you know a bowl of hard boiled eggs on a bar and a bowl of hog knuckles. So you could grab a hog knuckle and chew on it and yeah. chase it down with a beer and an old fits or something, you know, a shot of Jack. <laughs> and um, so, and the more hog knuckles, the more you drank, right? Right. Yeah. And those hog knuckles came from pure packing, which was there. Mm-hmm. And my grandfather and I, ironic story, at the end of his career, he was old. He was 64, mm-hmm. <laughs> and which was old in 1948. Uh, yeah. Wow. And he got hurt there and he died in that building. He no. didn't die in the building. He went home and died. But uh, he oh, got hurt there in 1948, the year before I was born. It's got a special thing for me. One of the things we have is one of his original uh, pay slips. So mm. for like more than 40 hours of work, he took home like $48. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, you know, I didn't know John Adel, but a Canadian broadcasting company wanted to interview him. And they asked me to come with them. So I did. I'd never been in the building. I'd always knew that's what happened there. And I always kind of stayed away from it. Walked in. 
met John, and John and I became instant friends. And we did an opening lecture last year, and we're going to have a, a big opening coming up. Oh, that oh, sounds great. wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, I hope you guys can come. We would love yeah. to. Yeah. Did you ever teach the stockyards to your students? Oh, yeah, all the time. What sure. kind of reaction would you get from the vegetarians in the <laughs> Well, you know, actually, my daughter became a vegetarian for about five years after seeing me in a film. Uh, and when they were slaughtering the animals, I was narrating it. Uh, <laughs> so she became a vegetarian. Yeah, well, you know, some of the kids would walk out. You know, when I would show a slide, they would say, I can't see it. I said, that's okay. I was never the kind of teacher who said, you can't leave the classroom. But I always wanted to write a book about the stockyard, and the University of Chicago Press gave me that chance, and that's what came out in 2015. That was my closing the circle on the stockyards. Now I just closed the circle on the Polish community. Mm-hmm. Let me give a plug. American War saw the rise, fall, and rebirth of Polish Chicago. That was Dominic Basiga, and again, a great interview. And his book, American Warsaw, The Rise, Fall, and Rebirth of Polish Chicago, is a terrific book. It was, and a great interview, a lot of great information about Chicago history, and specifically the Union Stockyard. There was an old saying at the stockyards, they used every part of the animal except the squeal. But you know what, Patrick? That's not true. Somebody figured out how to use the squeal, Somebody figured out how to use the squeal. Please, tell us. When I was working in Midway Airport at Monarch Air Service, one of the planes at our hangar was owned by John Morrill and Company, and that was a meatpacker. They had a jet commander. Every airplane has a tail number. Pilots refer to it as an N number. Yeah, it's identifying serial number, basically. Right, so when you're flying into Midway, you call the tower, and you say 757 Yankee Quebec for an approach or whatnot. Right. Or the tower might say 757 Yankee Quebec, you're clear to land runway 31 left. And that's how the air traffic control would track uh, right. flights. So when it came to the John Morrill Company, their N number was N101NK. Or if you look at it, it looks like N1 Oink. N1 Oink. So they basically use the squeal. There you go. So they did use every part of the pig. <laughs> And that is my final connection between the Union Stockyards and Midway Airport. Cool. All this interconnectivity. So we leave you with a funny story about Dominic Masiga as a young guy. His actual experience in the stockyards, right? Yes. He was a greenhorn, and there was a steer in the boxcar who didn't want to leave. And his boss said, go in there, kid, and retrieve it. Sounds like an interesting story. We should hear Dominic give it a whirl. So thank you for listening. I remember one night we had 2,500 head of Black Angus cattle coming from the Dakotas. And we were taking them down in the pens, 25 at a piece. These cars were overhead lights, but cars were still dark. And Black Angus was black, dark. And I came back and they said, hey, kid, you got to go in the, the car and, and get him because he won't come out. He's... There was one left. He wouldn't come out. And he was scared, obviously. You know, I said, I have to go in? <laughs> you know, and this is a 900-pound animal. I said, okay, so, uh, you know, usually you take a cattle cane and hit the sides of the slats, and that would drive them out, but mm-hmm. this guy was not coming out, so I had to go in with my cattle cane, and I'm going bang, 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 and I'm going, come on, come on. <laughs> that guy said to me, so if you get in trouble, there's a chin-up bar above the door. Grab the chin-up bar, do a chin-up, and he'll go under you. I was one of those guys in high school who never could do a chin-up. I walk in, and I'm thinking, like, jeez, I could never do a chin-up, you know. <laughs> so please, cattle, come out. Please, beef, whatever you are, come out. <laughs> and I hear, rawr, 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 and I see 
hay flying up in the air Jeez. through the slats. And I, oh, no. He comes charging at me. I grabbed that bar one Oh, my God. Did a one-arm chin-up. And so when you hear the story about some little old lady picking up a car yeah. with a little baby That's out, right. I'm up there at the top, and I'm thinking, Coach, if you could see me now. <laughs> <laughs> the Union Stockyard Chicago is. Thank you for listening to the Windy City Historians Podcast. Audio editing by Christopher Lynch and Patrick McBriarty at the Wayland Island Studios. And special thanks to Jill Hogginson for the idea and branding assistance and Nate Kennedy for technical support and specking our audio equipment.